You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. We've been going through the series Carriers, and uh, we started with this week two in July, uh, talking about being carriers of the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, the most important message that human ears have ever heard, that's ever been spoken, I believe, is the good news of Jesus, because it's the only message. There's lots of messages in the world, and, and the Bible actually says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. There's a lot of messages in the world that promise life, but, but leave us empty, promise fulfillment, but actually lead to death and destruction. And yet, but the good news of Jesus is one that produces eternal lasting results. uh, And that brings us into a relationship with God. And so we talked about the importance of as Christians, as believers, that we're carriers of that message. It's not just for pastors and missionaries and Sunday school teachers, but every one of us are carriers of the good news of Jesus. Not only that, but we're carriers of, of something even more. We're carriers of a message, but we're also carriers of the presence of Almighty God. That's what we talked about last week. We're carriers of God's presence. And uh, I think it was week two we talked about, but we're carriers of the name of Jesus, the name that's exalted above every other name. And, and that name is what brings us our name, our identity, our purpose in Christ, that, that when the world has given labels and when the world has tried to define who we are, that we find something that's real and lasting and it comes from who our God is and what Jesus has done. And so we talked about being carriers of the name. Today, as we finish this series, we're gonna talk about another word that is, is, is all throughout the Bible, but especially when we get to the New Testament and it's the word kingdom. Uh, we are carriers of the kingdom of God. God. If you're taking notes, the message title is this, there's a miracle in the house. There's a miracle in the house. Uh, the Bible says a lot about the kingdom of God. It has a lot to say about that. In Colossians chapter 1, uh, beginning in actually verse uh, 13, it says, Jesus has delivered us, from the, or God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or, or transferred us, moved us from one place to another. And he's, he's conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Aren't you glad for forgiveness, church? Yes. Aren't you glad for redemption that, that he paid the price? Our sins separated us from God. All of us had the same problem. Every person who's ever lived from the beginning of the fall of mankind has had the same problem. It's the problem of sin. And no matter how the world tries to rearrange it, redefine it, sin still separates. It still destroys. You can put a different label on the bottle, but poison's still poison. And sin still destroys. But Jesus is a good and perfect Savior. And God rescued us from our sin so that he could provide a relationship with God, a home in heaven, and a purpose on the planet Earth to walk in his will for our lives. And, and, and so part of that is it's the, the entry point is redemption, that he saves us from our sin. But I like to describe God's kingdom this way. It's like a great big house, a great big mansion, and the entry point, the doorway is Jesus. The doorway is salvation. And many Many Christians are content to enter the lobby of the house, the entry point of the house, the front door of the house, and stay right there and say, well, I'm thankful I'm saved. I'm thankful I'm saved. Like, how many with me? If God did not one more thing for me, he's done enough for me always to celebrate. Like, I was on my way to hell, and he rescued me. 
He saved me. That's good news. Uh, but, but, but God's so good that not only does he rescue us, but he provides for us a future and a hope. And, and he's, his, his kingdom is a word that's used throughout the Bible. In fact, Jesus' first message in, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that he came preaching the kingdom uh, or the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. So the kingdom is not just, uh, it's, it's not just a organization or institution. In fact, it's not that at all. It's where it's the message of the king showing up to transform people's lives. And the kingdom is something bigger than, you know, we, we don't use that term, especially as, as good uh, uh, American revolutionaries. Uh, we stopped using kingdom in 1776. Uh, but, but, but this, and, and it's not often used, we've exchanged kingdoms for nations, but, but this word is a biblical word, a biblical idea, and it goes back to what I read to you. There's two kingdoms at work in the world. While there's many nations, there's actually two kingdoms. One is operated in darkness, and that's what God saved us from, rescued us from. It's actually what influences and affects the course of the world. And yet he rescues us from that dominion or that, 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 that area of operation and places us in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of the Son. The kingdom is something that's meant to affect every area of our lives. And as believers in Jesus, not only have we been transferred into the kingdom, and I'll explain what that is in a moment, but we've been brought into the kingdom, but, but also here's what Jesus had to say in describing the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 17 Verses 20 and 21, uh, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when the kingdom of God would come, uh, would arrive on planet earth, he answered and said, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. And, and, and here's how I would define, there's a lot of different terms used. The, the kingdom of heaven describes what we receive and inherit uh, in eternity in heaven, but it also describes the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives. Why is the kingdom within? Because Jesus wants to work on the inside of you and me. He wants to, the Holy Spirit comes and resides on the inside. That's what we talked about last week is being carriers of God's presence. And, and this is important because as the church, many times we're looking outside for a solution. We're looking even in the world for a solution. We're like David, I described last week, where he borrows the idea of a cart from the Philistines instead of going to God's word for how the protocol of the presence of God was to be conducted. And yet we see here that Jesus says the kingdom of God is not something Something you can see or identify externally, but it's something that's, that God does on the inside of you. And that's important because you can define kingdom this way. It's the dominion or rule of the king. That's the simplest term for the kingdom. And why that's important is Jesus doesn't want to just affect things outside of my life. He wants to start on the inside of my life. Let me make it super personal and practical. Uh, are there any issues in your life that you'd like to see changed? Not, not just inside, but, but you look up, there's, there's some people problems around you. Anybody have, don't raise your hand. Maybe. <laughs> you have some people problems, you have some challenges, you, you have some difficulties, and often our first response is to say, I want those things to change. And that's not bad. I want those circumstances to change. I want those people in my life to change. I want that, that career, that job, that boss, or, or that, that, that I, and we point outwardly instead of recognizing that the first thing, in fact, the most important thing that God changes is what he does on the inside of me. If you want your marriage to be better, let God start in you. 
If you want your relationships to be better, let God start in you. If you want, 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 if you want things to change in your workplace, let God start in you. Uh, and, and so the kingdom begins within you is what he's saying. Jesus says the kingdom of God is not just something you see externally, but it's something that happens on the inside. I, I want to illustrate this with a story. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 Second Kings chapter four, you know, Kings is, is a book that records, it's called that because it records the history of many kings in Israel and, and later Judah, two kingdoms that would result. And, and, and uh, why this is important is, is you see this thread throughout when you read, there's first Kings and second Kings, two different books that describe a, a, a chronological history of Israel. And the most repeated pattern is this, when Israel had a good king, the kingdom was good. When they had a bad king, the kingdom was bad. So, so bad leaders produced a bad environment. And, and, and I've heard it said this way, and I think it's true. Everything is essentially a leadership issue. And so if we want our families to be good, it starts with us as parents. If, in, in our, if we want our nations to be good, we need godly leadership. We, we need all these things. You see this there. Well, well, the kingdom of God is always good. Why? Because the king is always good. And you see this in kings, like one generation would serve God because they had a godly king, but then the next generation would forget the sacrifice and the cost and the price that was paid. And they would drift towards idols and drift towards, I, I've never found myself to drift towards something good. <laughs> like I've never drifted and my life gotten better. Like we, we, we tend to drift towards destruction, deception, uh, distraction. We tend to drift towards things that are not great. And, and, and in the middle of that, there's some stories peppered throughout of God working in the midst through prophets. And one of them is named Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. It says, a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha. And she said, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And pause there for a moment. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to the rest of the story. Some of you know this story. Uh, but, but I love this because Elisha is a man of God in Israel. He's he's pointing the nation back to God. And that's still to be the mission of the church. When, when the world looks like Rome, the church should look like Acts, and we still need to point to Jesus. So, so just because things outside are bad, just because the world is going to hell in a handbasket, doesn't mean the church stops having a purpose and a mission. And, and that's our calling. And Elisha is there. And this woman comes and she says, hey, listen, I've got a problem. My husband, who's, who served God, who honored God, he's one of the prophets, in fact, he is dead. And, and, and there, because of debt, it wasn't just that you, know, you racked up interest, you actually became a slave if you were in debt. 
and, and you would have to work off your debt until uh, it was repaid. And for most people, that indentured servitude would never be fulfilled. And so it was basically, uh, she said, listen, they're coming. The creditors are coming. They're going to take my sons and they're going to be slaves. And, and Elisha says, what am I going to do for you? And he asked her a question that I, uh, the reason I explained the kingdom and pointed to the kingdom is because the question is, is the same for many of us. There's an issue we're looking for solutions outside. And the, the, the reality is God has given us everything we need already to see his purpose fulfilled. If you have Jesus in your life, you have everything you need through the kingdom of God, the word of God, the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to accomplish the purpose of God in your life. And the problem for this woman is she says, well, I don't have anything but. I think most of us are experts in what we don't have. Who's not with us? What, what, what we don't have available, what resource, what gift, what talent, what ability, what, what favor. We, we look at other people and we say, well, I'm not like them. And we undervalue what God has already put on the inside. He says, what do you have in your house? And I want to remind you today that what we've been given is nothing less than what Jesus described. It's the kingdom of God. And if you, as a believer in Jesus, you've received the king into your life, you have access to everything that's a part of his kingdom. The world's kingdoms run out, but his never does. The world's kingdoms lead to emptiness, but his kingdom leads to fulfillment. And this is important because Elisha says, you're coming to me for a solution, but I want to ask you, what do you already have? Do you know that God doesn't work with what we don't have? He works with what he's already given us, and he multiplies it. He does the impossible with it. <laughs> Philemon is really a small letter in the New Testament, but it's powerful. Paul writes to someone he describes as a soldier in the faith. And here's what he says. I'm praying for you that the sharing, verse six, that the sharing of your faith may become effective. That's a Greek word, energeo, which means to be energized, activated, brought to life. It's like you turn the, the, you put the key in the ignition and turn the engine on. There's combustion that happens. There's something that creates movement and energy. That's this word. And so he says, I'm praying that the sharing of your faith may become energized, activated, effective by what? The acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. So we, we talked a few weeks ago about being carriers of the message. Well, it's not just words. In fact, the Bible says this, the kingdom of God is not in word only, but also in power. There's something behind it. There's something that's energizing it. There's something that brings about real lasting results. His king, religion is talk, but God's kingdom transforms. Religion says you'll always struggle with this, but his kingdom says be free. <laughs> oh, you're not quite with me. The, the world and religion says, you're going to have to manage this, medicate this. Here's what God's kingdom says. There's a purpose in you. You're a child of God. You're redeemed. You're bought with a price. Your, your value isn't defined by what the world says, by what the enemy says, by the lies that have been spoken. You are who God says you are. And his kingdom is what redefines your life. And what you have on the inside is greater. The Bible says it this way, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. It's, 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 a, 
It's a contradiction when a child of God is intimidated by a world, but we have something greater on the inside of us, and it's God himself. It's his kingdom. In fact, why, why is Jesus comes along, and he's, he, his very first sermon is this. It's very simple. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within reach. Why? Why was the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king was there. Like, it's not, uh, I, I heard somebody say this, like, this week, I was listening to a podcast, and they said, well, don't talk about the kingdom in church, because people are confused by it. You have to be a seminary student. No, no. <laughs> it's, and I was like, well, that's too bad I listened to this, because I'm already preaching on the kingdom this Sunday. Uh, but, but here's the truth. The kingdom is not complicated. It's the king. The presence of the king, the authority of the king, the word of the king. There's a lot of opinions that are fine and good, but the opinion of the king is the greatest. Yes. <laughs> and, he, and, and Paul says, listen, your faith becomes effective, energized. The sharing of your faith becomes energized. It produces powerful results by the acknowledgement. That's a word that means to know by experience. Not just information. It's not enough for me to tell you as a pastor to say, this is what's on the inside, but God wants you to experience his kingdom that he's put on the inside. <laughs> what do you have in the house? Elisha asked her. She says, well, I have nothing but a jar of oil. I think the reason she said nothing but is she's looking at what she thinks is valuable and she, doesn't, she, she inventories what she has and goes, it's nothing but a little jar. I can't pray like they pray. I, I, I don't know the Bible like they know the Bible. I don't, I don't and, and we have all these ways we evaluate what we have and who we are by comparing ourselves to other people. And we go, well, they've got a full pantry. I've just got a jar. <laughs> what do you have in the house? Three points today. Comes from that basic question. He says, what do you have? I want to ask you first, what's in your heart? What's in your heart? Do you know that everything that God does starts at the heart level in us? Why? Because it's out of the heart, the Bible says, that proceed, Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, lying, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus said that in context of the religious leaders came along and said, hey, uh, Jesus, your disciples didn't wash their hands before dinner. And they get all mad about the disciples. Jesus says, don't you know that, you know, eating with unwashed hands isn't the real issue? It's actually what's in your heart that's the issue. Religion tries to clean the outside, but can't do anything about the inside. And Jesus says, no, what's inside is actually what's affecting your entire life. It's out of the heart that all this stuff comes. That's why we need more than just external pressure, external rules, uh, self, uh, self-help, uh, willpower. Those things are not enough when there's something at the core of who we are that needs transformation, and it's the heart. Your heart's so important that Proverbs said it like this, guard your heart above everything else in your life. Guard your heart because out of it actually flow all the issues of life. New Living says it this way, that it directs the course of your life. If you don't like the direction you're going, watch what's being invested and planted in your heart. Like we've got to actually be, you know, 
I hear Christians all the time say, well, it's, you know, I, I don't need to worry about what I'm watching, listening to, saying. Well, listen, it's not about rules. Don't watch this. Don't go to that. Don't see this. It's about what I've learned that what I put in my heart will affect my life. And after a while of saying that if I put in trash, trash results, I go, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't put trash in my heart. If I'm going to be around gossipers, I'm going to start wanting to gossip. And I realize that there's certain things that I can't allow to affect my wife because what goes into your heart affects everything else in your life. That's why Jesus comes along and works on the inside of us, transform our heart. To, to, and, and as believers, we, we bring our heart to the influence and the rulership. See, what does a king do? It's not complex. A king rules. A king reigns. And if I want the kingdom to flow from my life, I've got to allow his kingdom to reign on the inside at the heart level. That's, that's actually where it starts. The Lord's Prayer says what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I believe that's a great prayer to pray that God would do that in our nation, in our city. And what does it look like when his will is done in my family? What does it look like when his will is done in our city? The stuff that used to destroy people's lives no longer has a place to reign. But you know where it starts? It starts in allowing his will to be done in me. God changed my friends, changed my spouse, changed my coworkers. Changed, and we can pray those prayers, but, but what if we allowed his kingdom to rule in us first? Judges 21, 25 is a verse. There's, there's, this verse is repeated twice in the book of Judges. This is before Israel had in, any kings, good or bad. And here's what it describes. It says this, there was no king in the land, Judges 21, 25, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you study that book, like in between these two verses that, that say this is some of the weirdest stuff that happens in Israel. Like, I know we say, follow your heart. That's just bad advice. <laughs> because the result, like we, we think freedom is, I'm gonna do whatever's right in my eyes. The problem is, what's right in my eyes is ultimately self-centered. It's about me, and it's about push, building my kingdom instead of his, living for myself instead of others, doing what I wanna do, and, and the result is usually death in some form. <laughs> Here's God's kingdom, Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but in righteousness, peace, and joy. I don't think there's anybody in the world that would say, I mean, there's people that say, I don't want righteousness, but there's people that say, I want peace. I want joy. I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. Like that's, that's, most people want that. I don't think anybody's like, I don't want to be happy. I don't care what you say. I don't want joy. I don't want peace. I want to be in conflict with everybody always. I mean, there are, I've met some people like that. They thrive off conflict. But generally, most people want at least those last two. But they result from the influence of the kingdom and the king himself in our lives, transforming our heart. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So, so I, I started with this, what's in your heart? Because what, what's in your heart is, it, when, when, when sin is what reigns, 
The result is going to be death and all these other things. But here's the flip side of this. You know, the Bible actually says in Ecclesiastes is a book that describes like, you know, what life is like without God and it's vanity, it's emptiness. And, and, but there's this one statement that Solomon says in there. And he says, you know, there's a time and a season for everything, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to uh, go to war, a time to have peace. All, he goes through different seasons of life, but he says, but God has put eternity in the heart. Every person, whether they know God or not, has on the inside of them eternity. God has put inside of your heart. That's why nothing will satisfy outside of God. That's why nothing will fill. That's why no label the world can give you will stick because it's not what you've been created for. You've been created for eternity. You've been created with God's eternal purpose. You've been stamped with heaven. It's funny because even atheists can't stop talking about how they're atheists and they don't believe in God. It's weird that the one they don't believe in is so much a part of their conversation. (laughs) Because there's something branded on the inside of you that's created for God, that's created for his kingdom that can only be filled by that. And I believe part of that is God puts a a heaven-sized, a God-sized dream on the inside of every human being, every human heart, and it's a dream that he only can bring you into. That's why if we can put point one back up, when you can answer answer that question, what is in your heart, you just begin to discover what purpose is about. Because purpose is being a carrier of his kingdom to the world around us. It's representing the king, Jesus. It's seeing the captive set free. It's seeing the hurting healed. It's seeing the lost found. And there's something on the inside of you that goes, no, I was made for more than what I've seen, what I've been given, what I've known. I'm created for more than this. That's that eternity he's put in your heart. Number two is what's on your mind. What's on your mind? I would describe that as focus because here's, here's, how, here's what I know. Most people bury, that thing that God has put in their heart gets buried by a lot of other stuff. And if I were to ask you right now, what was on your mind? I've already talked a lot about food. Some of you are thinking about food right now. Some of you, I heard an amen in the front row. Some of us are worrying about stuff. We've got thoughts about the week ahead. Worried about our kids, worried about our marriage, we're worried about our business, worried about the economy, we're worried about just, just the list is endless. We're, we're consumed with this stuff. That's why I say when you discover the answer to what's on your mind, that deals with your focus. Matthew chapter six, Jesus said this, Matthew six, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you'll drink or what about your body, what you're going to put on is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your father, your heavenly father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to a stature? In other words, how can you add anything to your life by worrying? Worrying is something that feels productive, but it isn't. You ever stayed up all night worrying and not found a solution? So you're just tired? <laughs> so he says, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. I quote this verse every time Jenna wants to go to Target. 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. I may have to pay for that later. Uh, now, if, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. So, do you see the, the common threat? Like Jesus repeating this statement again and again. He says, don't worry. What are we gonna eat? Like, what's, what's on your mind right now? What are you worrying about? What are you striving about? What are you fighting others about? What are you struggling to get ahead with? For after all these things, verse 32, the Gentiles seek after, those without God, they seek after these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but here's what we should do. So instead of worrying, we have to do something else. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, now when I hear first, Sometimes I look at first as one or first among many. Like first is in, this is number one, this is number two, this is number three, this is number four. But that's not what it means by seeking first. It doesn't just mean seek like first in order. But this is about priority and focus. When, when we seek first the kingdom, and really when you're seeking the kingdom, you're seeking his, the king and his purpose for your life. You're saying, I'm gonna build your kingdom, not my own. I'm gonna live for you, not myself. I'm gonna advance your purpose. And, but, and here's what I found, the secret to real fulfillment is building his kingdom first. Because every dream I ever had got fulfilled as I began to find the dream of God first. Instead of worrying, seek first the kingdom. If, if, it's, if his kingdom's first, if the king is first, then he's first in foundation and priority. And everything else is connected to that. When you, when you have a foundation, you don't rebuild the foundation. It's not just first in order. It is the first thing you lay down. But the foundation is connected to everything else that's built upon it. And when his kingdom is first in your life, everything else in your, your marriage, your business, your relationships, your priorities, all flow from that place. Here's why this is important. Because I've run into some stuff in life that I go, I don't have an answer for this. But when I've sought first his kingdom, I go, oh, this is not my problem. This is your problem, God. And you have a solution. And this isn't on my shoulders, it's on your shoulders. And I can go to God with this issue, this problem, this, this need. I can go to God first. Because, and, and that's why we can live. Here's what he says. He says, seek first the kingdom instead of worrying. And then he goes on and he says, tomorrow's got enough trouble of its own. I think we forget that we have grace for today, not tomorrow. Tomorrow's grace will come when you get to tomorrow. I'm a planner. I like to plan. I like to plan ahead. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. You should. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. <laughs> I think sometimes we're stressed out because, you know, I found out there's something called the American Institute of Stress. Like, we've got so many stressed out people, we have an institute for it. 77% of people experience stress that affects their physical health. 73% of people experience stress that leads to mental health issues. 50% at least have regular trouble sleeping because of stress. And listen to this, I'm, this is gonna shock you, 94% of people experience stress at work. The 6% is the staff of River City Church. Jason's in the back. Jason, don't say anything. I had this week, I was uh, 
on a flight and I was in security at Atlanta. If you ever been, anybody ever flown through Atlanta? You never want to do it again. And I was, I was in the security line and I'm, I get all the way through the line and we're like right up against when I have to get on the plane. So it's, I got very short window and, and it's the longest line I've ever been in in a security checkout line ever. And I get to the front, I'm like, I've got a few minutes, I gotta hurry up and get there. And I got behind the worst person to get behind because my bag got redirected to like, we're gonna go through all your stuff, that line. And so I get right, got redirected, which I'm like, that's fine, just hurry up, look through my stuff. The person in front of me, while I'm worrying about getting to my plane, decides that she's going to make jokes to the TSA agent, but like sarcastically. And she says, oh yeah, he's like swabbing her water bottle. She goes, I got liquid drugs in there. And then the next one is the thing you never say at TSA. She goes, oh, and I got a bomb in the bag. I know, like I'm like this lady. Like she's gonna get tackled. They're gonna think I'm standing next to her. And I'm like, I am not gonna make it on my plate. That's all I could see. And then, and then that gets over and I, finally she gets through. I think they just didn't wanna deal with her. Um, and she gets through and then comes back. And now she's back with her husband who has lost his ID and boarding pass. And he's, you know, he's frantic. He's looking through all the trays that you're supposed to put your stuff in. And, and she's letting him know this was the worst mistake of his life. And she's letting all of us know that he has made the worst mistake of his life. Instead of worrying, what does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom. Our focus matters. What's on your mind? Let's go back to the story of the woman. What happens? She comes and she's worried. I've got a problem and it's real. Like the creditors are coming to put her sons into indentured servitude. They're gonna be slaves. And she says, I need help. I need help. He says, what does this have to do with me? What do you have? If we knew that we had the king with us every single day, we wouldn't carry worry any longer. We wouldn't carry shame any longer. We wouldn't carry fear any longer. Number three is the last one, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? What does Elisha then tell her? She says, I have nothing but a jar of oil. Let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 3. He says, go and borrow vessels from everywhere. She says, I've just got a jar of oil. He says, go borrow empty vessels from all your neighbors and don't just gather a few. And when you've come in, shut the door behind you, you and your sons, and pour into those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she began to pour it out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her sons, bring me another vessel. And they said, there is no other vessel. So the oil ceased. What's happening? She's taking her little vessel, her little jar of oil, and she's pouring it into empty vessels that they've gathered. And as she's pouring every vessel, that's the miracle. Every vessel she's pouring into gets filled. God takes her little jar, which she looks at as insignificant like, who, who told you all you have is a little? Who told you all that you have to bring to God is just a little? Who told you that your gifts are insignificant? That your purpose is insignificant? She says, I have nothing but a jar, jar of oil. But it's the very thing. Watch what Elisha says. She comes and tells the man of God, Elisha, and he says, go and sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. That sounds like a deal. Come on, somebody. But why is that important? Because she takes what little she had, she begins to pour it, and it's in the action. What do you have in your hand? That's your gifts. There's things that God has placed and deposited in your life, and listen to me, 
every person in this room has gifts from God. Every single person. Every person on planet earth has gifts from God. Some people recognize it, some people don't. Some people use those gifts for God, some people don't. But God used the gifts of God, God used that little jar of oil, that little that she had was enough for her and her whole family. But the key was it couldn't stay on the shelf. It couldn't stay inactive. It couldn't stay passive. It had to be utilized. It had to be poured out. It was, in fact, the miracle took place in the pouring. Well, I have gifts, but they don't matter. I have gifts, but they're not utilized. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you. Paul says, I, I got, and this is to Timothy, like he's a leader of the church. And he's got stuff that he's buried. If Timothy's buried it, how much more have all of us buried things that God has deposited on the inside that we think, oh, it's nothing but a little jar. God could never use that for much. It's not like their gift, so it's not important. But here's what I want you to remember. What God has given you is exactly what you need to fulfill his purpose in your life. The issue is not whether or not it's enough. The issue is, is it sitting on the shelf or is it being poured out? Stir up the gift, fan, the, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then he says in verse seven something that I think is the reason why many times we keep ours on a shelf. For God has not given us a spirit that makes us timid, but he's given us power, love, and self-discipline. It's not mine. Why would Paul say that to Timothy about God hasn't given you a spirit of fear or spirit of timidity or being intimidated. Why would he say that? Because the, the previous verse was about a gift that was buried, that was, that was dormant, that was neglected, that was overlooked in Timothy's life. And the reason why it was so is because there was something that caused Timothy to not utilize that gift, and I believe it was fear. That's why Paul has to say, God didn't give you a spirit of fear. If you live life based on the spirit of fear and intimidation and, oh, what are they going to say? What are they, how are they going to respond? We don't pray for others because we're worried about having all the right words. Do you know that Jesus is our intercessor at the right hand of God? In other words, he's our interpreter. You can say an imperfect prayer. <laughs> it's quiet. You don't have to pray in King James for it to be effective. Just start pouring the jar. Start pouring the oil. Because what was valuable was not what men valued, considered insignificant. It was what was meant to be poured out. One last story. Jason, if you and the team want to get ready. In Exodus, there's a man named Moses. We all know Moses. Moses is, in, in Exodus 3 and 4, Moses is 80 years old. And he's just about to step into his purpose. I'm too young. I'm too old. What do you have in your hand? What do you have in your heart? He is taking care of his, his uh, father-in-law's sheep. He's a shepherd on the backside of the desert, the most remote place 
probably on planet Earth, in the back deserts of Midian, and he's going alongside this, taking care of the business that he's responsible for. And, and it's, it's weird that I, I think this is becoming an increasing issue that we think, well, our gifts can only matter if we have a platform for the gift. And what if we're faithful with what God's given us? Moses is taking care of sheep on the backside of the desert where nobody can Instagram it, celebrate it, hashtag it. But he's doing what he's supposed to do. And while he's there, he sees a burning bush. Now, I come from the desert where there were wildfires with regularity, <laughs> far too often, because it was so dry. My parents were out there in Arizona this week. It's 118, so I'm thankful I'm not in the desert. But, but he walks by this dry desert bush and it's on fire, but he goes, there's something different about this. It's on fire, but it's not consumed. And he says, I'm gonna turn aside and go see what this is all about. And he's willing to leave what's routine and ordinary to, to step into something that's about to be a divine encounter. And he draws near to the burning bush. And, and sometimes we think that God only meets us in a, just, it's dramatic moments, but what if God met you in the ordinary, but you would pass by if you weren't careful? You're so focused on what's on your mind that you miss the burning bush. Nobody notices I'm taking care of these sheep. Nobody cares. He says, no, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna check this out. He draws near, not even knowing what this was all about, and he meets with God. <laughs> he walks over with the shepherd's staff and he hears a voice, the voice of God saying, this is holy ground, take off your sandals. And here's the voice of God say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I've heard the cries of my people who are harshly oppressed by the Egyptians. And I'm sending you Moses to be my representative, to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And he gives them an assignment. He's telling Moses, you're gonna be a carrier of a message. Moses says, I, 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 I'm not enough. They're not gonna believe me. Pharaoh's not gonna believe me. People are not gonna believe me. God says, no, you don't understand. I'm with you. In fact, if you read Exodus 3 and 4, we won't for time, but, but, but Moses makes every excuse why he can't. He gives God every reason. And God responds not by answering his excuse or his concern. But God says, I'm with you. Uh, who, who am I going to tell him sent me? Tell him I am sent you. And then in chapter four, at the very beginning, he says, God, I, I, I just can't do it. Pharaoh's not going to believe me. And, and, and God asks him a question that I've already asked you. What's in your hand, Moses? Well, all I've got is... It's a shepherd's staff, this rod. It's a stick that I use to redirect the sheep. God says, that's perfect. Throw it on the ground. Throws the staff on the ground. 
that staff turns into a snake, a serpent. Freaks Moses out. Because if there's one thing you don't want to see in the desert, it's a serpent. God says, grab it by the tail, pick it up. He takes it by the tail, he picks it up, and it becomes a staff again. And God says, that's what I want you to do before Pharaoh. I want you to take this ordinary staff, this ordinary rod, and I want you to throw it on the ground, and I'm going to make it a sign and a wonder. And why that's important for us, church, is God didn't use what he didn't have. God used what he did have. God took what was ordinary. God took what was already within reach. God took what what Moses would have undervalued, and God used that to perform a miracle. It would be that same staff that Moses would come to the border of the Red Sea and he'd place it in the water and God would part the waters. And the Bible would actually call that the rod or the staff of God. Same staff, same ordinary shepherd staff, that same instrument, that same tool. God would use that to do something extraordinary. Can I just ask you today, what is in your hand? What has God already put in your life that he wants to use for his purpose? that he wants to use to reach your family, that he wants to change the narrative of what you were given. What has God put in your hand that you're undervaluing, that you're you're not recognizing? Do you know what Moses had to do though? Before he could take it, before Pharaoh, he threw it on the ground. And do you know what God needs us to do with our gifts, with what he's placed in our life? It's in our hand, but it's gotta be surrendered in his presence for it to produce the results that God wants to produce. There's many gifted people in the world that don't surrender what they've been given. And because of that, that gift is used for some other purpose. We look at people in the world that are far from God, that are using their gifts to pull people away from God, and we think, well, the devil gave him that gift. No, he didn't. The devil's not creative. He can only pervert and twist what God has already given. But let me ask you, what has God given you? What has God placed in your life? What's in your hand? It just might be the solution to the problem that's on your mind. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.